Coming up on Garden Talk. We are continuing to add diversity um, as we build up these worm bins. And then, of course, anything that's organic matter, uh, that soil food web is going to break that down into uh, carbon. And carbon is basically like the currency, if you will, of the soil food web. You know, if you're not monitoring the temperatures, you can basically ruin maybe a couple weeks to a couple months worth of work. So that's very frustrating when you first start out. He knows to poop and pee in the worm bin. So I have uh, probably 15 uh, 100-gallon worm bins uh, down in my basement. I focus on freeze-dried corn, and it has to be freeze-dried. That's how it still has the nutrients in it. Non-GMO, obviously organic. And then the main secret ingredient that I feel when you're really focusing on getting worms to breed, other than avocado tech, is focusing on... What's up, everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, a.k.a. Mr. Grow It and you're tuned into the Garden Talk Podcast. This is episode number 21. In this episode, I interview Brian Waxman. Brian is a host of the show Living Soil Conversations here on YouTube, which oftentimes gets 10 to 20,000 views per episode. He has been gardening for 12 years and focuses on educating the gardening community from living soil systems, vermiculture, beneficial insects, and more. In this episode, we talk about making worm castings and vermicompost by utilizing worm bins. We also get a little bit into beneficial insects, which can be in worm bins as well as living soil systems. Don't forget to click that thumbs up and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating and review. And if you're liking these episodes and you want to support the podcast even more, you can do that through Patreon. The link is patreon.com slash mrgrowit. And if you're watching on YouTube, I will link it down in the description section below. Before we get into the episode, I'd like to give a shout out to our sponsors. The first sponsor is Spider Farmer. Spider Farmer is now the exclusive LED grow light sponsor for this podcast. They make LED grow lights with quality components and sell them at a lower price than comparable fixtures on the market. I've been using their SF2000 LED grow light for several grows now and have used their SF4000 in the past. They also have other style lights, grow tents, an inline fan, and a carbon filter. I will leave a link to Spider Farmer down in the description section below and you can use discount code MrGrowIt5 during checkout for a discount on their products. The second sponsor is Dutch Pro Nutrients. Dutch Pro is a plant fertilizer company that was established in Amsterdam 30 years ago. And as of a few years ago, their nutrients are now available in the US and several countries across the world. They have everything needed for proper plant nutrition from base nutrients, pH regulators, and additives like silica, CalMag, and more. I'll be using their nutrients in showing my results on my main YouTube channel in the upcoming months. I'll leave a link to their Amazon store down in the description section below, and you can use coupon code MrGrowIt10DP for a discount on their products. All right, now let's get into the episode. All right, we are back, Garden Talk Podcast. Today I am joined with Brian Washman. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, sir. Appreciate the invite. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm super excited to have you on today. You know a lot about vermiculture vermicomposting and that's really what we're going to get into today so uh, i'm actually brand new to it uh, i wanted to get a worm bin going i kind of have it in my plans but i haven't yet pulled the trigger yet um, there's some research that i need to do before i go about that but i'm hoping to learn some things from you today that will allow me to pull that trigger and, and get going and um, so my audience actually is more towards the beginner slash intermediate side of things. And we haven't covered that topic at all on this channel. So I'm going to be learning right along with my audience today. So 
Excellent. Well, you know, it's really all about building soil. So it doesn't really matter what you're farming. As long as you understand the soil food web, as long as you continue to educate yourself on how to build soil systems, how to make them become alive and thriving, uh, that's really the end goal of whatever you decide to farm. Um, and so the, one of the main secrets I'm going to kind of talk about today, and you'll see for yourself, is that composting worms use um, they're hermaphrodites, and as soon as they touch each other, they want to reproduce. And once they really uh, ball up like a gumball effect, uh, that creates what's known as biofilm. So they're going to create all that biofilm, and then once that org organic matter is broken down, they're going to continue through that soil system and basically you know, start to build and dig those dissolved oxygen channels, which is really what you're after when you're a soil farmer. Gotcha. So before we get too deep into things, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into gardening? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my name is Brian Walksman. I'm from, uh, basically grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I feel like I became a man in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, really started to learn a lot about just plants in general. Um, I was, you know, trying to make a, a small living for myself, trying to do things. I got, a, you know, really, it's almost like whatever I want to try to do that I feel like I can make money with, I focused on. And at that time, uh, online poker was really big. Uh, so I got really deep into that, started to uh, be able to provide a, a decent life for myself. I moved to Colorado, continued to uh, kind of hone those skills. And then uh, April 15th, 2011, uh, the government shut all that down. Um, and so I foolishly, I guess, thought that I was going to do that for the rest of my life. Um, definitely it wasn't as it wasn't glamorous or anything like that. I didn't have the skill set to be a glamorous poker player, but um, playing online and stuff allowed me to at least work from home, if you will, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, so when that was taken away from me, they also froze the funds that you had in, in your account. So I had a full tilt account, uh, an ultimate bet account, like absolute kind of the same thing, absolute poker account. Uh, and when those were frozen, I really uh, had no other skill set. I um, hadn't graduated from college or anything. So uh, the only really, uh, um, you know, where am I going to go from here is when I started to study soil sciences. And that's when I actually started to learn about people like Dr. Elaine Ingham. Um, from that, I learned um, about a guy named Jeff Lowenfels. Uh, he's wrote, th you know, three books that I feel like, you know, your audience should definitely view as like a blueprint for understanding things. Um, and it's simple to remember, teeming with microbes, teeming with nutrients, and teeming with fungi. I would personally recommend, especially if you're new to this, uh, to just read the Teeming with uh, Microbes book. Uh, then, in my opinion, read the Teeming with Fungi book, the third book, and then come back to his second book. Because uh, that one, it, it, for me, as far as uh, being educated in Georgia, uh, that, that book was a little hard for me. So I felt like if you can understand concepts and maybe see some more verbiage uh, that you recognize, that second book's going to be a little bit easier. So, yeah, I was kind of forced into understanding um, our, our new path, at least, because, uh, yeah, the government literally shut it down on uh, tax day uh, 2011. So let's start with kind of the basics. What is vermiculture and what is vermicomposting? So vermiculture is basically, you know, you're going out of your way to make sure that there really are no mistakes. So instead of composting yourself, um, what's also kind of known as hot composting, uh, vermiculture is a simple definition is you're using composting worms to break down organic matter. Um, and one of the easiest ways to do that is, uh, in my opinion, using four different composting worms. I'm going to get into that in a minute. Uh, but that really is kind of the basic. And then really get into vermi vermicasts, um, which is worm castings. 
uh, vermiculture, all, all that kind of stuff to me just really means that we're using composting worms in conjunction with other things um, in the soil food web. Uh, springtail mites, rove beetles, again, we're going to get into all that stuff, but we're using a um, symbiotic relationship. Um, most things in Mother Nature that are beneficial are going to work in harmony with one another. So as long as we understand creating diversity uh, and we really focus on moving things uh, kind of more towards as best we can, especially in an indoor environment, to the old growth forest, uh, the easier it's going to be for us as a farmer. So pretty much like the end goal for this process would be to obtain either vermicompost or like a worm castings. Is that right? And, and how much can you like how long does this process actually take? Uh, so when we're getting into the worm castings, uh, that really is the, the black gold, if you will. Um, when we're farming, that's kind of the stuff that can change. It's an inoculant, in my opinion. Uh, yes, it provides nutrients, but that's not necessarily what we're after. Uh, we're just after viewing it as an inoculation. And so, you know, the large fields, like if you're a, a major manufacturer of a, a worm farm, you know, a million worms is probably doing 700 uh, pounds of worm castings every single day. Uh, to bring that down to scale for the, you know, for the rest of us that are doing this in our basements and that kind of stuff um, in the backyard, um, you're going to need about 2,000 of those composting worms. And when I say composting worms, I'm usually referring to red wigglers with these numbers. They have to be optimal conditions, uh, but they're going to create about seven pounds every month for you. Um, so in my opinion, you need to kind of start with at least 2,000. Again, in optimal conditions, they're going to completely double their population every 90 days. Uh, so that extra 1,000 that you buy, uh, in my opinion, is worth it since it'll go to basically two, four, eight, um, and not, you know, with math, I feel like buying that extra thousand, or if you could, if you can get maybe four thousand uh, to start, um, that's really where I guess basically it's how quickly are you wanting to quote unquote buy time? Because um, once you've purchased composting worms, you're never going to have to uh, purchase those again as long as you uh, maintain the system. Okay, so to start the process, really, I think starting with the container, you know, like I mentioned, a lot of my growers, a lot of the people who tuned into me are more home grow side of things. So I'm assuming they're going to be working in small containers. I know you're probably more of like a larger container type thing. Can you tell us like what container size you use for it? And then also what you recommend for someone who's new to use? Absolutely. And I, I want to kind of set this. I feel like I've tried a variety of different things. When you Google, they talk about how cheaply you can do stuff with plastic tubs. I haven't had the success that you're going to need as a farmer if you're really trying to create optimal um goals with your composting uh, worms and that kind of stuff, you're going to need a fabric pot, uh, in my opinion. Uh, so that I go, you know, I basically view that as the stomach. Uh, that is the stomach of the soil food web. Uh, the reason why we are building that up is because we are trying to create what's known as the rhizosphere. It's just a fancy word for where all those uh, roots and exudates are feeding that soil system. Um, and to really have that, um, you know, be a, a thriving and a, have it come alive and become thriving, you need to have plenty of oxygen. Um, and so that's why I feel like fabric pots are where it's at. Now, since I mentioned that it's a stomach, I would say that the minimal, um, if you're going to do this, in my opinion, correctly with the, uh, the amount of uh, volume that you're trying to get, then I would say that a 20-gallon fabric pot should be minimal. 
Um, that's easy to move, uh, you know, relatively. Um, and as things start to build up, you can continue to inoculate other pots and that kind of stuff. Um, so if you wanted to maybe have smaller pots, I would just say consider your 20 gallon as your mother. Uh, if you're really into this or you're, you know, you're using this to continue to um, improve your overall garden, uh, then you're going to want to go to what I have in, in my basement, which is several hundred gallon pots. Um, and the reason that I'm doing that is because I, it takes a long time to create, create those castings, especially if you start with 2,000 worms in a 100-gallon uh, pot. That's going to probably take you a year before that really starts to churn. Uh, so, again, it's how quickly do you want things uh, to take hold. And if you have time and you don't have a lot of money, um, that's where, you know, just understanding uh, and being proactive. And, you know, if you're, if you're starting a little project and you know that's three months down the road, this is something that I always tell um, con consulting clients as well as our audience and that kind of thing is be so proactive that the first thing you do before you even start to, you know, set up your tent or build your, your grow out uh, or, or focus on your, your backyard farm is to get that, that worm bin going so that you have your fresh, uh, you know what went into worm castings. All right. So for those that are new, they've got their 20 gallon container or whatever size they're using. What's the starting material? What do they put in there to begin? Yeah. So I actually, um, I wanted to make sure that I had this. So I have this in front of me so that you guys can have a blueprint that I feel like for a beginner, this is uh, where it's at, in my opinion. Uh, this has come from a lot of uh, research over the years. And again, this is, in my opinion, very basic. So this is something where you can start out, kind of see how your system becomes alive and thriving, and then you can continue on and try to understand more about natural farming techniques or biodynamic farming, living soil. Uh, you know, there's a variety of different like tentacles that come from that main octopus of organic farming. Um, and so when I would focus on this, uh, the base that I personally like to do is I like to get the lava rocks. Um, that's something that I feel like, you know, especially when you're building these up, this is something that's going to pretty much last forever. Uh, so I take that uh, lava rock. Uh, again, this is, you know, I'm doing this cheap and basic. Um, there's this stuff called pit moss. If money isn't an issue for you, that um, ethically is better than uh, Canadian's sphagnum peat moss. Um, but Again, that stuff is really cheap. You can actually get an organic. If it comes from Canada, as far as I understand, all of that is organic. Um, so if you go to Lowe's, there's a bunch of compressed bricks and that kind of stuff that you can get for extremely cheap, like 11, 12 bucks. And that's going to last you probably months. Uh, so I will take that uh, Canadian sphagnum peat moss, and then you kind of lightly cover all of that lava rock. Uh, that next layer, I'm, I'm focusing on kind of bringing back that old growth forest again. How do we, in a way, kind of set the tone with that? Um, I like to use that Alaskan humus. Uh, it doesn't really matter what brand, uh, just using that older uh, Alaskan humus. And then I will, again, drizzle that over. Um, if, if, again, money isn't an object, I might buy two or three of those bags. Um, if you're just kind of starting out, one will get you by. But, again, it's time that's going to really get everything churning. Um, then I will um, basically start with like a light food layer uh, for the, the worms that we're going to start to build up. Uh, so I focus on coral calcium for that. I focus on freeze-dried um, corn, and it has to be freeze-dried. That's how it still has the nutrients in it, non-GMO, obviously organic. Uh, and then the main secret ingredient that I feel when you're really uh, focusing on getting worms to breed, other than avocado tech, is focusing on nutritional yeast. Um, so that is a tried and true secret that I have found um, that just seems to be a cheap um, overall feed instead of having to buy like the expensive worm chow and worm food and that kind of stuff. 
in my opinion, it's extremely overpriced compared to uh, mixing up your own nutritional yeast, freeze-dried corn, uh, and then a little bit of that coral calcium. And again, calcium is really what's going to get those composting worms to be able to reproduce. Uh, so then after I've laid that, I missed what's known as um, sunshine in a bottle, or it's a bioag product, uh, full power. Again, that's a tried and true secret that I feel like to kind of get everything going. Uh, that's a light mist. Again, this is, uh, you don't want to go overboard with this kind of stuff, especially when you're starting things at, you know, and setting things up. So again, just a light mist with that. Um, and then I will cover all of that, um, again, with a little bit of that sphagnum peat moss. And then my first worms come in, which are known as the Alabama jumpers, or the Georgia jumpers. Uh, those are the ones that are going to be deeper into that system. They're going, for the most part, to be able to stay down into that system. Uh, these are fabulous. Also, if you're really trying to break things down, uh, they go through clay like butter. Um, and these are, you know, I would say I've only been really playing around with these for maybe a year and a half to two years. So it's still something new. Uh, they are an invasive species. So uh, for people that are concerned about that, again, we're just doing this in our worm bins, and, you know, inside. I wouldn't be releasing this stuff outside. Um, and then once everything starts to uh, kind of settle in, I would really focus uh, to keep things cheap around 300 to 500 of those um, Alabama Georgia jumpers. Uh, then I will add the uh, pumice and the rice holes. Again, I feel like that is a tried and true secret with perlite. If you're adding stuff like that or vermiculite or God forbid vermiculite kind of stuff, um, especially perlite, that's going to start to float to the to the top over time. I feel like a lot of the older uh, farmers, older heads, uh, have known that from experience. So when you're using perlite, to me, it's kind of silly because that stuff's going to go up uh, if you're focused on, you know, building beds, building raised, raised beds especially, or building these worm bins that you know you want to, you know, hold on to for years and years on, on end. Uh, perlite is silly. Uh, so again, it's that pumice, it's the rice holes that are going to break that down. Um, and then I'm going to add um, what are known as the European night crawlers or the African night crawlers. Those are a little bit different. The European night crawlers are a thicker worm, bigger worm. Uh, also, because of that, it feels like it's a, a slower worm for like breeding and that kind of stuff in my experience. Uh, so I use those uh, mainly to build uh, larger dissolved oxygen channels. Uh, so again, probably about three to 500 of those. Uh, now with the African night crawlers, they're kind of like a nice little hybrid between the red wigglers and the European night crawlers. Uh, so I really focus on having the majority of kind of in that middle section of African night crawlers over the Europeans, uh, over the Europeans, just because of uh, the speed and everything that the Africans can kind of take off. I feel like it's more of like a, uh, a sportier version of a composting worm. Um, and then once everything is kind of building up and, uh, layering out again, I feel like a real secret is to kind of go more to, uh, leaves, twigs, sticks. Uh, and if you put that, uh, in the oven for 200, uh, at 200 degrees for around 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe to be safe, um, you're going to kill anything that could potentially be in there. I have found that, um, worms especially really like to break down oak leaves and magnolia leaves. Uh, so that's something that I personally will spend a little bit of money on um, if I'm trying to speed things up. It just seems to be like another one of those uh, little secret sauce. Uh, and then once those magnolia leaves, once the oak leaves are starting to get in there, I will add kind of the basic stuff that you've always heard, newspaper, egg cartons, uh, kind of building up um, the brown manure kind of thing, tree bark. Um, and again, this is kind of layering things out, but it doesn't have to be an exact science. They're going to churn all this stuff anyway. So it's kind of silly to sit out and 
Um, you know, and, and I encourage you guys to make more than one one of these. Like if you're going to do a 20 gallon, then make three 20 gallons and kind of see how, wow, these um, the processes are going to be different for each one of those. And then if you continue to farm and you want to improve your skill sets and then, you know, one day you maybe get to a large commercial level, uh, that's going to really come in handy when you understand how to improve a sluggish soil system uh, because you've been worm, worm farming for all these years. Um, and then once that starts to take hold, again, I will uh, kind of just finish off and, and maybe about three to four inches of uh, that Canadian sphagnum peat moss. Uh, again, that's just a cheap, uh, a cheap uh, medium, if you will, uh, to start to build those things up. And then, of, of course, those composting worms in time are going to break all of that down into to castings. Um, and then at the top is really the, the secret sauce. Uh, for just life in general, you know, most of the uh, the, the real action that's going on uh, with the soil food web is probably between the the one inch to four inch range, and that's where um, the red wigglers. Those are the composting worms that most people have probably heard of. Anytime you Google anything and it's talking about composting worms, that's usually the variety that they're talking about, um, and they're um, not as ferocious. Um, it you know, as long as you maintain population. So again, you don't want to get crazy with this. And if something for whatever reason did get out of control, for the most part, they will self-regulate. Uh, but it's it's pretty easy to also, uh, like I'll, I'll talk later with avocado tech, is to be able to get the worms to come to a certain area and then just take that avocado and put it into inoculate another soil bit. And just to go back on the, the worms, for example, you had mentioned four different types of worms, right? Somebody who's brand new, can they just get away with just starting with red, red wigglers and just doing that alone or, or what? Absolutely. I mean, if they want to uh, kind of just experience this, and again, it's, you know, pennies on the dollar, you want to see this for yourself, then the red wigglers are probably where it's at because they're going to be the hardiest worms. Um, I personally have never had them escape even in like a um, forgotten dusty basic plastic bin left in the corner where uh, some of the other ones, because they are larger composting worms, um, they're going to escape that when they, when there's not a food source anymore. Uh, so that's one of the main things again, where I say focus on that fabric pot is because I've never had them escape since I've been using fabric pots. Okay. So you touched on Browns a little bit. Um, I know from my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, they say that you should, when you're adding in inputs, have a balance of green and browns. I've heard 50% as kind of the ratio of greens to browns. Can you tell me, is that accurate? And then also, can you give me some more examples of greens and browns that people can add? Absolutely. Uh, in my experience, man, I've noticed that if I am just adding greens, if I'm adding something that is just greens, I'm going to have uh, issues with that. So technically, anytime that I add greens, I still add a little bit of a filler of brown where it's like newspaper or cardboard or something like that. Uh, I just found from my own experience that I have better success with that. I also don't uh, feed the worm bins any kind of like f real food or anything. Um, I focus on, like I said, that, that food chow that I was talking about. And then we, um, we focus on also uh, using lionhead rabbits. So we're using cold manures. Um, you can also use alpaca manure, that kind of stuff. So uh, we're using cold um, composting uh, theory and with using the composting worms. And then we're also feeding with cold manures as well, which is going to minimize for a new farmer uh, any kind of issues or, you know, especially when you're composting, regular composting, um, sometimes you can get that, you know, if you're not monitoring the temperatures, you can basically ruin maybe a couple weeks to a couple months worth of work 
Um, so that's very frustrating when you first start out. That's why, I, you know, anybody that's starting out um, just composting in general, that's why I, I try to teach them, hey, start out with uh, vermicomposting because it's a lot easier um, and it's not as frustrating uh, because obviously they're not, they're not making mistakes. Uh, so again, with the green manures, um, we really want to focus on co cover crops. When we first started out, uh, I felt like everybody was talking about clovers, um, but we found that that attracts too many bugs, too many issues. So we use the diconja, which is basically like a, um, a cover crop of uh, just plant material, right? It's just kind of like protecting the soil. Again, this is a shout out to uh, Steve Cantwell of Green Life Productions. Uh, he's really the, the forefront of that. Uh, there were a lot of people, himself included, that was talking about always using uh, a clover, a variety of different clovers, but it, um, the new up-to-date version is that we're going to use that diconja because it's not going to give us really any issues, and there's other ways to add nitrogen to the system. Uh, so we like to focus, uh, you know, when we're, when we're building our worm bins, this is totally different than when we're building our raised beds for, for other cultivation techniques. Uh, so. Um, you know, usually some of the, the plants that I, the medicinal plants that I like, you know, we like to cultivate, uh, their roots are actually going to go more of a, of a, in a width pattern. Um, they're going to continue to go out, uh, where when I'm focusing on building a worm bins, I want to use dynamic accumulators. I want those, uh, deeper roots to go, uh, deep down into that system, especially if I'm using a hundred gallon or 200 gallon fabric pot. So it's a little bit different. Uh, you know, if you're using a 20 gallon pot, I don't think that dynamic accumulators are going to be worthwhile uh, just because it's not really a bigger, uh, deep enough pot. But if you are at the 100, 200 uh, gallon ratio, that's where you get into like the dandelions, the chickweeds, uh, the nettles, uh, the daikon radish, uh, comfrey, uh, especially the balking comfrey. Uh, those are things that I feel like are going to be game changers for you when you start to see that uh, we are continuing to add diversity um, as we build up these worm bins. And then, of course, anything that's organic matter, uh, that soil food web is going to break that down into uh, carbon. And carbon is basically like the currency, if you will, of the soil food web. So the more exchanges that can go on, uh, just the overall utopia that you're trying to build. And uh, I guess with greens, to, to add with that, again, coming back to like the avocado tech, that's something else that I feel like, um, you know, you want to make sure that you're always adding organic avocados. Um, and if you can, I, you know, I like to, we have a, a grocery store called Sprouts here. Uh, we also have one named Natural Grocers. Um, so you can go and talk to the produce manager and say like, hey, what do you guys do with your organic avocados uh, once they've turned brown? Because that's actually when you want to use those um, when you're using avocado tech. And a lot of those guys will sell them to you for, you know, maybe a quarter a piece, maybe less. Uh, some of them will even give them to you for free. Uh, the main stickler on that is, again, you want to make sure that they're organic. And the way to always know that is the, the grocery stores will put a nine uh, before any other number uh, as long as it's organic. So if you uh, walk into a grocery store and there's uh, avocados on the left and avocados on the right, uh, the one that has the nine before any other numbers, uh, that's going to be your organic choice. Um, and I feel like as long as you maintain that, you're never going to add potential issues uh, to your soil system by, in my opinion, going cheap. Um, and it's really relatively uh, inexpensive, you know, when you're buying organic avocados in general. But for avocado tech, I think if you're really trying to do it the, in the right way, you're trying to find avocados that nobody was going to use. Or, or, you know, your family uses it and then you put it in there, that kind of thing.
So let's get a little bit deeper into avocado tech because I know a lot of my viewers are newer, like I mentioned, and a lot of people don't know, avocado tech, what's that? Can you, uh, can you explain what that is and how you actually do that? Yeah, well, there's actually two versions of it, so I want to give credit where credit's due. I feel like our little crew in Denver, Colorado, we have uh, Avocado Tech 1.0, and then there's a gentleman named uh, Blue of Green Tank, uh, and in my opinion, he created uh, Avocado Tech 2.0. Uh, so what I'm teaching you guys today is the basic stuff, Avocado Tech 1.0. And then I encourage you to go check him out on Instagram. He also has uh, been on several podcasts where he discusses kind of taking this to the next level and using a variety of different things than just avocados. Uh, but the basic Avocado Tech is simple. You're going to take um, a... a Pretty close to starting to rot uh, avocado so that's nice and uh, easy to manipulate. You're going to kind of push that together like a baked potato and you're going to cut an X into it like a baked potato. Pop open the, so that you see the fleshy part. You're going to take that fleshy part and you're going to then take it down and shimmy it down into your living soil system. Now, I don't recommend doing avocado tech until your system has become kind of alive. It doesn't necessarily have to be thriving, but you definitely want... Uh, you know, when you pull back that soil to see those worms, to see those springtails. And once you see that with the naked eye, uh, then you can implement this system. Uh, the reason I say that is if you leave an avocado out there and there's not enough composting worms to devour that in time, it could potentially uh, be a nuisance, add fungus gnats and stuff. So, again, there's a, a kind of like a balance with this, a, a Goldilocks approach of knowing um, when to add the avocado and, you know, if they're not breaking it down quick enough, when to remove the avocado. So in optimal conditions, what's going to happen is the uh, composting worms are going to start to crawl up into that avocado. They're excited by the fat. Uh, they be more and more begin to uh, accumulate within that avocado, uh, and then they begin to touch each other. Uh, like I mentioned at the beginning, uh, um, composting worms are hermaphrodites, meaning they're male and female. So all they really have to do is touch each other, uh, and then it's brown cow, uh, brown chicken, brown cow time. And the reason why that's going to the next level is because we're able to get those to kind of consolidate in one little area, uh, and that starts to build up the biofilm. That starts to build up, uh, in my opinion, the real secret sauce of what uh, living soil is, uh, and that's getting back to Mother Nature. So once those avocados starts to uh, break down and, and build up, uh, you're going to, since they all uh, started to uh, reproduce, you're going to see just a pocket of these little white, um, when you first see them, you might think it's like an outbreak of a, a non-beneficial, but they're extremely tiny little white worms. Uh, you'll see them start to kind of be around the area where that avocado once was. Um, if you do have enough of a uh, system that's, you know, it's, it would definitely have to be probably a year or two in, they will break down that avocado pit as well. If it's a newer system, uh, that's probably not going to happen. So I usually will take those avocados out, maybe smash them and then uh, apply a, a top dressing. Now, that's to get composting worms. There's another version of this when we're trying to get orbital mites, predatory mites. We're trying to, you know, again, spend pennies on the dollar for some of this stuff. And so with that, we're going to take the same avocado, but instead of cutting it open like a baked potato, we're going to cut that in half. So now you have two halves of the uh, avocado. You're going to take that down again, shimmy it down into that soil system. And because it has more air, more exposure, uh, the, the uh, mites will actually take hold of that a, a lot faster than the uh, composting worms. So you will still get composting worms when you use the uh, second method, uh, but it's not going to be that gumball effect that you're after. So if you're really after building up the composting worms, then that first baked potato 
baked potatoes style method. Uh, that's the one that you're going to want to use. And again, that's going to work for red wigglers, um, European night crawlers, African night crawlers, um, and the Georgia, Alabama jumpers. So it doesn't really necessarily matter. And again, this is going to build up the springtails, the rove beetles, really everything that's involved. This is kind of a little catalyst, if you will, uh, to, to spark up that life. And you can put these all over your soil systems, or if you're in a larger commercial facility, I mean, you can put these all over your raised beds so that, um, again, if you're being proactive, you might be able to take 2,000 worms and put them in, into each 4x4 four four bed uh, that you yourself have farmed over these last three months and save the uh, owner-operators you know, a, a ridiculous amount of money, especially when you're first starting to get things up. Shipping the worms is extremely costly. Sometimes, depending on where you are, it costs more to ship the worms than it does uh, the actual worms. So that uh, prohibits a lot of this kind of stuff. And I, I encourage people to, you know, you, you want to go out of your way to be local. Uh, I like peer-to-peer -peer kind of stuff, especially if you're working to try to get inoculants. Uh, shout out to Marco is growing. Uh, that's another gentleman that I know that's going out of his way to not only teach about natural farming techniques, uh, but is continuing to now breed uh, beneficials for the community as well. Uh, because unfortunately for a lot of that stuff, it's still extremely expensive uh, for the larger cultivator to be able to farm with beneficials effectively. Let's get a little deeper into beneficials. I think that's a great segue to it. Springtails, rove beetles, those are some beneficial insects. And as you mentioned, they're not only in your living soil, but you're saying that they can be in your worm bin as well, right? So can you talk to us a little bit about springtails, rove beetles, kind of introduction to them and, and how they're beneficial and so on and so forth? Absolutely. So my first uh, meeting with springtails is I really didn't understand what they were. I started to water, you know, day after day, week after week, and I would notice after a while some of uh, the fabric pots, uh, some of them had a little bit of that snow that started to pop up, um, and then a lot of the ones uh, would pop up and it looked like kind of like Christmas morning over there. Um, so I went to Google, I started to find out what are springtail mites, and I would I promise you the first uh, probably two pages when you Google that, it's all about how to get rid of springtails, that they are a nuisance. Uh, so I personally freaked out. I threw away genetics that to this day uh, still kind of stings, uh, not realizing that you know what I'd really done is kind of overpopulated the springtails. So again, in moderation with things, uh, but there wasn't channels like yours, you know, there wasn't a, a Mr. Grower where I could just sit here and um, take a few hours out of my day and really learn dialed in things on how to improve. Uh, for us back then, it was just on forums. Um, and sometimes, you know, it would take, you know, you ask a question back then, it might take three, four days for somebody to give you an answer. Uh, so this is what's really cool about digital media and that kind of stuff and where it's taking is just information in general has gone through the roof and hats off to the younger, uh, younger guys, the early 20s type individuals uh, because I feel like they're going to really be the future and the voice of a living soil organic style movement because they understand it from A to Z or at least they're starting to. For sure. Yeah, I know when I first came across springtails, I was like, what the heck are these? How do I get rid of them? You know, and then realizing that they were beneficial from there. Um, but you're not going to see that. That's the, that's the real issue is you got to kind of uh, already know to look for that information. Um, and again, springtails are just uh, organic decomposers. They're just breaking down organic matter in conjunction uh, in conjunction in a symbiotic relationship uh, with your composting worms. And then what I also like to use, especially in worm bins, are what's known as isopods or roly-polies. They basically kind of do the same thing as springtails. So those are two little extra things uh, that you can have that are going to really maintain your worm populations by breaking down organic matter so that there's enough food, there's no reason for those worms to escape 
landscape. Uh, and then again, it's once that system becomes alive and thriving, there's really not really there's not really that much you have to do to maintain the system other than feed it, uh, obviously watering the system and every now and then using maybe some avocado tech. Uh, but the beneficials, what you're really trying to do there is uh, inoculate and inoculate for cheap, uh, especially with rove beetles. Um, I personally like to use praying mantis for uh, the medicinal plants that I use. Uh, the beauty of that is you can buy little egg sacs. They usually come in you know, two or four. Uh, when you hatch those out, it kind of becomes like an alpha, alpha battle royale. So uh, there'll be maybe 150 to 200 per egg sac. Uh, they are going to basically start to eat each other, battle each other. The alphas will emerge. Uh, the alphas that come out of that will start to feed on smaller insects. Uh, at that time, they're brown, so they're working themselves, uh, finding things to eliminate in that soil system. As they start to uh, mature, they'll turn pink. Um, and for a moment there, while they're pink, they're usually kind of the most vulnerable. So they'll, they'll also still be in the soil, but they'll, they'll start to um, get confidence to go up into the stalk. And as they become an adult, that's when you'll see them either turn brown or green, or at least the ones that I personally used. Uh, there's super fancy ones like orchid praying mantis, but, uh, <laughs> you know, for money-wise, that's definitely not something you'd be using in your garden. Um, but, you know, your basic praying mantis, once that turns green, uh, they're kind of like watchdogs, if you will. And so as long as they don't get too close to each other, um, if they do get too close, you can literally pick them up and then just set them on an, another plant uh, on the other side of the garden, other side of the room, um, and just keep things moving along. Uh, the, the one thing that I will say, I used to help keep them alive by using ladybugs. And I want to kind of set the tone for that is ladybugs, all of the ones that you purchase at a garden center, those have all come from wild crafted areas. Uh, so they also carry vectors and disease and kind of that kind of stuff. And you, it's not really what you think about at first. You think a ladybug is going to be beneficial. Uh, but the reality is, is that you want to use green lace wings. Um, so all of us now that are cultivating, using beneficials, focus on living soil systems, we personally don't even use ladybugs anymore. Uh, so using a praying mantis, again, you're going to have to use probably something else to keep them alive if you don't have major pest issues. Um, so maybe like a minute pirate bug or an assassin bug, uh, they will still kind of eat that. So you need to make sure that there's something for the praying mantis to eat because they will grow to a pretty large length. And uh, if, if environment is well enough, I've had them, me personally, live up to a year. Uh, so again, it's, it's something that is uh, pennies on the dollar uh, for a uh, up and coming farmer. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's really cool. And we're just kind of scratching the surface here with the beneficial insects. I mean, we would go on and on and on and on. Probably I'd do it a whole dedicated episode to, to that. That would be awesome. But yeah, that, that that's really cool. That's that's cool that it's not only in like living soil, but also it's fine if it's in your worm bins as well. It's just something that I learned today. So I didn't realize that that was okay. I thought it would just be worms breaking it down and, you know, obviously the microbes and stuff like that. But having all these other beneficials in there, there's no harm in that. So that's, that's pretty cool. Diversity is what's going to keep uh, your soil system alive and healthy, whether that's uh, in the soil system or, you know, the, the beneficials that are protecting um, the plant material. Uh, and again, real quick, there's something that was called the hypiosis miles. When I uh, first started out, I believe they've changed it now to uh, what's known as the skidimus predatory mite. Uh, but if you add that to your soil system, it's relatively cheap. And especially if you're proactive, let's say you, you added it a couple months 
uh, before you really started farming. Um, that is something that is extremely beneficial uh, and, in my opinion, something that is uh, tried and true for making sure that you don't have pests and disease. And with the good also sometimes come with the bad, right? Fungus gnats are one of those things that I think are pretty common when it comes to like worm bins. You mentioned diversity is going to help, definitely help with the, uh, the fungus gnat situation. They thrive in wet mediums, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, but you're going to need to have moisture in your bin at all times. So that's where the fungus gnats kind of come into play. Now, that being a challenge, what are some of the things you can do to combat them? Uh, well, one of the main issues coming from fungus gnats is that you're probably overwatering. There's there's saturation. There's uh, issues with uh, compaction. Uh, again, that's another reason why you know you go out of your way to use the four horsemen of composting worms, is so that there's always dissolved oxygen channels being built. But let's say that you do have a major issue. You have fungus gnats. Uh, so the first thing you want to kind of do is. Well, actually, when you're starting up, you will always want to have the yellow sticky traps. Um, that is not to kill fungus gnats. That is literally just to start to monitor. So if you start to see uh, fungus gnats in one area of your uh, operation, uh, then you know that that needs to be handled. Um, so the sticky traps kind of are the canary in the coal mine, but that's definitely not a, a way to eradicate. Like I had mentioned, everything is about being proactive with the living soil system. So again, there's that Goldilocks approach. We have to keep a living soil system uh, with a little bit more moisture than you know the average uh, farmer that's used to using um, synthetics. So how do we, especially when I was first crossing over, uh, I was making a lot of mistakes. I obviously was overwatering. I was overfeeding. That's why I had the you know Christmas morning of springtails. I definitely had fungus gnats for probably two years when I first started doing this stuff. Uh, and it's because I didn't know about, uh, you know, the Skidimus hypiosis miles or the rove beetle. Uh, the fact that you could use basically Mother Nature to combat Mother Nature when things start to, to pop off. Uh, and again, the fungus gnat isn't necessarily anything that's going to... Uh, unless it gets out of control, it's it's more of a vector. It's more of a nuisance. So we want to make sure that we just don't have that issue. And that's why I encourage you guys as worm farmers, I know it sounds great to recycle your vegetables and, and your fruits and all that kind of stuff. But if you are new to this, more than likely, that is where your fungus gnat issues are going to come from, is that you're overfeeding your worm bins. Uh, and then th that's Overfeeding your worm bins is probably always going to happen uh, for a new worm farmer. Um, so why even take that issue? Why create that um, environment? Basically, a utopia for fungus gnats is overfed and overwatered uh, soil medium. Gotcha. One of the things that you incorporate, you know, in worm bins, you, you touched on it earlier, is rabbits. Can you talk to us about the lion head rabbit? Absolutely. So um, I've raised a, a variety of different rabbits. Uh, and, you know, the goal at the end of the day was trying to get them to pee and poop in the worm bin so that you could have more of a closed loop system. So I started off with dwarf white rabbits. Uh, I would have a couple of them. Uh, and... I could never potty train them. So we built like a little cage above the the worm bins. And so they would eat. And then when they would poop, it would kind of fall down into the worm bins. Uh, but if it, I personally didn't really like that, I, I like to um, interact with the animals. Uh, you know, I have children, that kind of stuff. So it just never felt like the right way. So I tried to uh, start to research and find other uh, rabbits that potentially could be a little bit smarter. And to my surprise, there's a rabbit that's called a, a lionhead rabbit. I actually have it right here. I want to show you guys. 
So this rabbit is extremely intelligent. Um, you can uh, potty train this rabbit. Uh, so he's uh, allowed to go up and down my house as he pleases, just like a, a well-trained dog. He goes all the way up uh, to my bedroom, my kid's bedroom, down into the basement. And he knows to poop and pee in the worm bin. So I have uh, probably 15 100-gallon uh, worm bins uh, down in my basement. Uh, I'm, I would imagine that's helped train him. Uh, to, to potty train him, uh, but having uh, more than one seemed to ha have that process extremely quick. Uh, and now he's able to run around um, as he pleases, go around, uh, poop as he pleases. I make sure that I'm feeding organic food. Uh, and then when he's pooping into those worm bins, uh, those worms are like the night crawlers are coming up at night to feed. So again, they're coming up, they're feeding on uh, organic matter, they're feeding on, uh, his name is Rick Ross, the real Rick Ross. So he's... Uh, <laughs> they're feeding on his uh, uh, manure, and then they're coming back down uh, and basically, you know, kind of uh, starting to build a, a real subway system, if you will, for all of those composting worms. And once it seems like they understand that there are uh, rabbit manure droppings at the top, everything just really starts to flow. And again, this is a cold manure. So if you're a smaller farmer, um, this rabbit might cost you a hundred bucks. Uh, he's going to live for like four or five years. And I assure you, if you're a smaller farmer, you only need one of these little guys. Um, and you know, he's a, a family pet. You know, my children hang out with him, like, uh, when they're playing Minecraft and that kind of thing, he'll just sit next to him and they'll, they'll pet him and that kind of stuff. So again, if you go out of your way to, uh, research a few things, it really is cool to see nature. As long as you have a, an animal that's intelligent enough to kind of make the system work. That's where I feel like even in like an apartment, if you lived in an apartment, you could still kind of have a closed loop, uh, worm bin and, and system. Uh, if you had one little bunny that you potty trained and, and a few pots and that kind of stuff. Uh, so again, it's, it's, you know, going out of your way to, to think about things and find ways, uh, to be more closed loop. Uh, even if you are a tent farmer or a basement farmer, or you're just kind of growing at your backyard and that kind of thing. Uh, what are ways to minimize costs? Cause when we first started farming it, that, that part never mattered how much it costs to, to farm the material. Uh, it was just more, what was the price, uh, at the end of the day where the reality now is it's all about quality. It's all about medicine, uh, regardless of your growing, uh, tomatoes or, or other, uh, plants, you know, you want new medicinal value also in your, your fruits and your vegetables. I, I feel like that's the reason why today, you know, just human beings in general, uh, seem incredibly pissed off. And I feel like this because a lot of us are, are suffering, probably myself included, are suffering from a variety of different um, uh, deficiencies, just like, just like our plants. Kind of went on a tangent there, but uh, you know, I first when I first started to notice the overall health of using a living soil system, I started to get the praying leaves on the plants that I was growing. Uh, I was using kefir, using other calcium uh, sources. That's when I started to find out about kombuchas. That's when I started to use kefir. Uh, so again, I want you guys to encourage again your you know you're building that soil system. Focus it as a stomach, and once you see how healthy that becomes. I encourage you guys to maybe start drinking kefir in the morning or have a kombucha over a soda and start to see your overall gut health. Um, I could get, you know, there, we can get deeper into that at some point as well, but there's something called autophagy where basically your body is going to be able to eat itself, break down those old folded proteins. Uh, and if you understand that process, I assure you, your life will change. Uh, if you have gut issues, if you just have brain fog, I personally had those issues when I was a young man. Um, and now understanding these things, I, 
Uh, not a, you know, once you understand that it's a stomach, whether it's in the soil system or right here, uh, your life can change dramatically in your farming and just your overall health in general. Wow. That's, that's very interesting stuff there for sure. Now, let me ask you with the rabbit. This is a podcast platform as well, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. So they didn't get to see that cute rabbit that you just okay. held up. Uh, adorable, by the way. Yeah. But um, also what I was going to ask is, do you have any pets along with it? Like I was wondering how does it interact with dogs, cats? Because you said that rabbit's kind of roaming your house. Uh, so, no, I don't have any cats or dogs. Um, you know, there would probably be an issue with most dogs uh, unless you kind of have like a golden retriever or something like that. I've seen that kind of work out. Uh, so, yeah, this would be more if you're trying to figure things out. Uh, I can put him downstairs in the basement and he can, you know, has he basically has his own little utopia. So you could set it up that way instead of letting him roam up through the house. The, the reality is I let him roam through the house uh, because my children enjoy it. Uh, so he can kind of and, you know, these especially a lion head because they are so intelligent they are social creatures uh, so they want to interact with you. you they want you to pet them you know i we feed them a variety of things i mean it's not just uh hay or something like that he eats organic uh, buck choy um carrots cucumbers i mean you name it radishes uh, so that we can get that um complete basically trying to create that complete manure uh, so that the worms break that down and again now we have a complete uh, worm casting and again that's the inoculant that's not your um, soil system if you just grew in worm castings i assure you that your plants would suffer uh, this is a a less is more type thing you know a little goes a long way with this and so when you do have just 20 30 40 pounds of this stuff as a smaller time farmer pat yourself on the back you know there's really no reason especially if you're building up living soil systems uh, why you're going to have to go back to that uh, hydroponic store you're now going to be able to go to the grocery store and and know specific nutrients that that your soil system needs makes sense that's really cool all right I do want to flip it back to something you talked about. You touched up about it a little bit, which is cover crops. Now, I didn't know you could have cover crops in warm bins. That makes me wonder, you know, lighting as well. If, if the cover crops are grown, there's going to be some sort of lighting. Can you talk about cover crops and worm bins and like the lighting requirements and so on and so forth? Yeah, I would say a lot, there's probably not a lot of people that use worm bins with a cover crop. The, most people that I see are using like, again, those plastic tubs or um, like a burlap sap, sack, uh, newspaper, that kind of stuff. Uh, but the reality is, is that you're trying to build that rhizosphere, whether I'm building a worm bin or I'm uh, building a soil system in my raised beds, I'm trying to just get everything to become alive and thriving. And so I need the roots to kind of make sure that everything um, takes care of itself, especially with uh, what's known as exudates. So when we build up that root system, they're going to start to communicate with the uh, soil microbes on what is needed. Jeff Lowenfels uh, makes a, a great example of this for someone that's new to this. Is it, It's like your plants being able to say, all right, tonight I would love to have a burger, but you know what? Tomorrow night I'd love to have Chinese food. Uh, or, you know, if it's more of like a, uh, you understand farming, it's more of, hey, I need a little bit more of nitrogen. I need a little more potassium. I need a little bit more more uh, phosphorus, calcium. And so the plant never has deficiencies whatsoever when you're using a living soil system. And in my opinion, man, when we say living soil system, what we're really saying is we're trying to grow with Mother Nature indoors. Uh, and since we, um, most of us are forced to cultivate indoors, uh, how do we 
you know, optimize that in the best way that we can. Um, and that's why I think living soil systems are the future for farming regardless, uh, is because it's using mother nature uh, to create that as well as using mother nature to combat pest issues and the overall health of your plant. Um, there is an old school saying that, you know, bricks levels f for some some people believe that 12% or higher uh, sucking incense won't recognize that that uh, plant as food. Uh, I, I don't know if you know those percentages are exact, but I do know that if your garden is healthy and there's almost, you know, the praying leaves, there's almost like this, ah, oh, when you first walk into your room, uh, you are going to hardly have any pest issues whatsoever. Interesting. Yeah, good stuff there. Okay, so starting from the beginning, we, you know, we talked about containers, we talked about the size, what to add in there to begin, worms, beneficials, we went through all that stuff. Now, say somebody has all that stuff set up, right? What's like, what's day-to-day -day tasks that they do, right? So you wake up in the morning, you walk into your worm bin, What's like a maintenance types task that you do on a day to day basis? Uh, this is extremely low maintenance. So again, um, you know, my focus would be to build up that cover crop. Uh, and once you have a cover crop, that's going to kind of uh, protect that soil system, but as well kind of manage and regulate things. Uh, the reason why you never see you know, unless man has intervened, uh, there's no bare soil in, in nature. And the reason for that is, is anytime you start to see weeds, it's, it's just trying, Mother Nature's just trying to go through that progression, that cycle. So, you know, on the left-hand side, usually when you look at charts, it talks about like very basic things, very uh, beginning bacteria that's starting to form. And then as you go through the progression and you get to more of the old growth forest, that's where you'll see um, higher uh bacteria to fungal ratios. And so I feel like uh, if you're really trying to grow medicine, uh, you need to have a, a balance of that as well. So you need to have the bacteria and you do need to have the fungal aspects. Uh, so that's why we're going to add those uh, inputs, but also grow the cover crop because it kind of just protects everything. You can chop and drop if things get out of control. Like I said, you can use a lion head rabbit that will come and munch all of that cover crop that's starting to uh, come over your bins. Um, I assure you one rabbit will mow down almost anything that, that you're trying to uh, cultivate on a cover crop basis. Uh, so I'm constantly reapplying seed because uh, Mr. Ross over there is, is mowing it down, uh, but he's providing such a valuable uh, fertilizer, cold manure, cold fertilizer uh, that it's worth it to me to spend, you know, maybe five, 10 bucks in seed every few months uh, to, to make sure that that process is as closed looped as it could be for, you know, where we are and in um, and, and a, a home environment. Well, we have gone over quite a bit in this episode. Uh, I think it is jam packed, full of good information. Excellent. So wrapping things up, how can the listeners find you? And what do you have upcoming in the future? Yeah, so, um, you know, on Instagram, I've uh, gone out of my way like you have, uh, Mr. Grow It, and I try to educate. You know, that's one of the main things that uh, we've been doing. We, we had live events in Denver, Colorado before anybody would ever really give living soil guys the time of day. Um, and where it's progressed is now we're on Instagram. So my handle there is 303 Organic Cannabis. Um, and if you want to learn more about um, kind of what, uh, we're talking about it. We have a show every Thursday. It's called Living Soil Conversations. It's on the Future Cannabis Project that's run by Peter. Um, you know, and then of course we have a, a event 710 July 10th in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, with some of the brightest minds. 
I feel like maybe a personal friend of ours, a mutual personal friend, uh, keynote speaker that we have, Chris, is uh, Brandon Rust. And then we also have Marco oh, yeah. is growing. I'm going to also have another podcast with him. Uh, and our launch party is also on July 10th. So uh, I have a lot of things coming out. There's a lot of behind the, the uh, scenes kind of stuff. Uh, and I honestly, man, I really appreciate you having me on your show. Uh, when we first started uh, talking about podcasts, people would always mention you. So you're obviously doing something right, bro, because a lot of people know about you really wow that's that's pretty cool <laughs> that's, that's awesome but yeah i highly recommend you guys check out his show living soil conversations excellent show uh, long form content right you're, you're sitting down with experts for hours on end talking with them getting real deep on things more of the intermediate slash advanced type discussions pushing everybody to the next level so hats off to you for for doing that you guys are doing a fantastic job over there that's something that i tune into all the time, pretty often Excellent. to get information as well. So I uh, highly recommend you guys go over there, um, subscribe, check out his show. You said every Thursday you're on there? Every Thursday at 11 Mountain Time, uh, 10 Pacific. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, All right. I will not take up any more of your time. Thanks again once again, Brian, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks a lot.